0: I want to bring God's word to you this morning from uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, I said earlier that as a a church in Cyprus we were looking to uh, bring on more leaders, more elders and deacons. And we come from a culture or a background, a a lot of the African students come from a background where the churches are, are run uh, by the, the pastors, the leaders, the, the GOs, the daddies, the, the apostles, the prophets, the priests, whatever they call themselves, and, and what they say goes. And so we were fearful of saying that we needed elders and deacons without showing from God's word why we needed uh, elders and uh, deacons. And so we entered onto a series about the church and underlining that that principle that... The church doesn't belong to the pastor, it doesn't even belong to the congregation of the members. The church is God's, and then we developed from there and we found ourselves uh, in 1 Timothy particularly looking at not so much uh, what it says to pastors and leaders, but what 1 Timothy says to the church itself and as you go into the, the first epistle of Timothy, and if you've got your, your Bibles open with me with you, I'd encourage you to do that. You realise that it starts with Timothy, uh, Paul speaking to Timothy, and, and just the, the usual greetings, and he greets him as uh, a true son in the faith, and then he gets straight on to the task. He wants to urge that they have no other doctrine, and then he tells them that the real doctrine is. Uh, glory to God for his grace. God's grace is what it's all about and we should be fighting the good fight and we should be praying for all men as we see there in chapter 2. And then it talks about relationships within church, how people should relate to each other. And chapter 3 opens up with the, the, the passage that we as a church are wanting to get to, but we want to do the groundwork first about the qualifications of elders and then on to deacons. And then it's almost as if Paul suddenly goes, ''Oh, yes, I need to tell Timothy why I'm writing.'' It's, it's a bit strange, isn't it? We, we were always taught in English and comprehension and later on and in business that when you write a letter, you should set out very clearly at the beginning what it's all about. Well, so often Paul sort of wakes up halfway through his letter, and, oh yes, I need to, to bring this in. And, and he says here in, in verse 14, so please follow with, with me in, in 1 Timothy 3 in verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But... If I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in Glory, and so he brings this message of why he's writing, and, and that beautiful little hymn there, and then he, as he gives the truth to them, he then says, "Look, there's great apostasy. You've got to be careful," and then he says, "You've got to take heed, Timothy, to your ministry and, and teach this truth." And then there's talk about how members should look out for each other and how uh, widows should be taken care of and how elders and older folks should be looked after and honoured and how servants and masters work together and, and greed and good confession and that it ends but this morning with the Lord's help I want us to concentrate our thoughts on that little section there uh, which is probably entitled in your Bibles the great mystery 1 Timothy 3:14 to 16 so let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father please as we look into your word now We ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes, that you would touch our hearts, and you enable us to hear, and not just hear, but act on what you are teaching us from your word. Oh, Lord God, keep us from any distractions. Keep us from anything that would hinder us hearing you. And, almighty God, we pray that your spirit would enable me to preach and bring your word to us, And the same Spirit would apply your word and enable us to act so that your name may be glorified now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul was planning to to visit this church in Ephesus. He had had something really important to tell them, and it was so important it couldn't wait. And he was also afraid that he would get delayed. And the Apostle Paul had got form of being delayed, a a wreck, shipwreck, a beating, an imprisonment, a revival. All these sorts of things came into his life and slowed it down from his actual plans. And so he wrote to Timothy, the pastor at uh, Ephesus. And these verses tell us why he wrote. He wrote because he's wanting to come. But if he's delayed, he wanted them to know how they should conduct themselves in the house of God. The Ephesians needed to hear how to behave in church. And I think that's enough said. If the Ephesians needed to hear it then, it is extremely relevant to us now, these 2,000 years on. We need to know how to behave in church. And sadly, so often what happens is Tradition, or our own preference or intuition of what we think is right. But it's not. It's not good enough. It's what God wants. And, and the reason that it's what God's wants is effectively what the Apostle Paul is outlining here, why this is so important. Why can't we have our own preferences in church life? Why can't we keep to our own traditions or our own intuition? And, and Paul initially sets out what the church is. And it's because of what the church is that we're not allowed to rely on our own traditions, intuition, or preferences. You see, this verse 15 says that the church is that the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so just as we start looking at this passage this first little section, I'm just going to have the heading, The Church Is. And as we look at the churches, there's three little things that I want to say, or three major things that I want to say from this passage of what the church is. Firstly, we see the church is the house of God. Or as some translations put it, the household of God. Paul was reminding Timothy, and Timothy was going to remind the Ephesians as he read this letter to them, as he brought this truth to them, that they were family. They were family. The church is not a building. The church is the people. The church is the house of God, the household of God. In in Galatians, when Paul's writing to them in chapter 3 and verse 28, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither Slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And this is a truth that we love in Cyprus. It's a truth we see in Cyprus around about us. When you've got a congregation of such diversity, you realise that this is true. And this is the beauty of what's been said here. Paul is saying to these people, the church is the house of God. We are brothers and sisters. He's saying to these Ephesians, you're from all different parts, but you are brothers and sisters. In fact, the, the amazing nature of this relationship that's brought in is Jesus is our big brother. Romans eight twenty nine, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so Paul is saying, look, You are the house. You are in the household of God. You've been brought into this family. I have two sons. And both my sons are tall like me. One is fractionally taller. And one is fractionally uh, shorter. And uh, people look at me and look at my father. And you've probably heard that expression. Like father, like son. And, And what we and what these Ephesians had to remember is there was a family likeness that they should be bearing. You, you don't want to let your family down, and this is, this is a big deal to African culture and and Turkish cultures. It's a shame culture, and you don't you desperately don't want to let your family down, and you don't want to be an embarrassment to your family name. And as we are reading here, and as Timothy was outlining to the Ephesians as he's passing Paul's message on, you are the household of God. There's a family name here. Are you living like this family? Are you living like a brother of Christ? Are you living like someone who is showing that they are being conformed to the image of Jesus Because if you're not, what are you saying to the world? And this was a challenge to the Ephesians and it's a a challenge to us now. And and it's it's a big, big challenge because secondly, we see from this verse, this little passage here, that the church is of the living God. And this is so important for us to, to get our minds around in Cyprus, particularly with our students from Africa. But I also think it's something that we miss so easily. You see the church at Ephesus was not Paul's. Even though it could be argued that he planted it, even though it could be argued that he was the apostle that was behind it all, as uh, so many of our African friends, that he was a geo, he was a founder. No, it's not his church. And the apostle Paul, in many ways, placed Timothy into the role of looking after it. But he was the pastor, and it wasn't his church. And the church at Ephesus didn't belong to the members. It was the church which they worshipped at. It was the church that they covenanted in together to be. They were members of the church for sure, but they didn't own it. The church is, as this little passage says, as that verse 15 says, of the living God. It is the church of the living God. And and Paul never chose his words lightly. He didn't sort of just think, oh, that will do. There's a great depth of of meaning to this, the living God, that Paul, as a scholar of the Old Testament, really would have got. It's a title that, that links to the timeless nature of God. So often when you read the living God in the Old Testament it's it's around the times when God did great things in the Ten Commandments, winning great battles, overcoming enemies, bringing judgment, bringing prophecy. So often the, the title that's used is the living God. And Paul is reminding this church in Ephesus that they are of the living God. And I think what's really amazing as we bring this into the New Testament. The Old Testament was about this living God winning battles overcoming enemies but as we see the living God in the New Testament we realise that the greatest achievement of the living God is establishing and keeping his people his church, us today, is one of the greatest achievements that God has done he's redeemed rebels and brought them back to himself and you, you, you go around and, and you maybe you've been to some of these older churches and, and they have a stone in, in the side of the church with an inscription. And maybe it was the, the founder, that the person who had the vision of building that church and the pastor's name is there. Or if you go back to Cobra, but Forest old, you can look up behind you and there's plaques to previous pastors. And, and, and sometimes... We can see these establishments as legacies of a dead person. You might go to the tabernacle in London. It's a church. Well, it's not. He's dead. Sorry. <laughs> but he is. It's not his church. It's, it's the church of the living God. And friends, you here at Maidenbauer, this church is owned by the living God. That's why there's hope for it. That's why there's hope for the church in Cyprus, because owned by the living God. And that's why we come back to this. You you cannot do things how you want, or how it suits you, or how you feel it will be right. But you have to be led by the living God, because it's his church. Pastor Walker does not have the last word. You members don't have the veto. You're part of something that is eternally greater than you. You're part of God's church. You're part of the living God's church. And back then, Paul knew that the Ephesians needed to know that. And we need to know that now. We need to know that especially now because we live in a day and age where everything's become personalised and I own it and I personalise it and everything becomes yours and it's... The church is not yours. We worship here. It's God's church. And we need to be continually reminded of that, that we need to live in our church lives in the light of the church belonging to the living God. But as we are in the church of the living God, as we are the household of God, as we've been brought into his family, we also see thirdly here that the church is a pillar and a buttress of truth. We can read this and think, a pillar and buttress of truth, well, what's, what's going on here? And the Ephesians, it'd be like this, they'd know exactly what Paul was talking about. You see, they were living in the shadow of one of the eight wonders of the ancient world, the, the Temple of Artemis was, was there then, around when this passage was written, when Paul wrote to them, and, and, and this Temple of Artemis was full of pillars and buttresses. In fact, it was 137 meters long, and that, that's that's big, that, that's much bigger than this building. It, it's a huge building. And it was uh, 69 meters wide, so it's a big rectangular shape. And it was 18 meters high. Now, that might not sound much to yourselves because that's probably about three or four stories high, and that's not a big deal, but in those days that was massive. And, and so this Temple of Artemis stood up on the landscape. And it was a physical reminder of Artemitus, and and, and all that he stood for. And and, and what Paul is saying, look, is just as Artemis' temple was there and stands out with its pillars and its buttresses, the church should stand up. There was 127, 18 metre high marble columns that held up this roof. It was shown and dazzle people in the distance. And Paul is saying, look, Ephesus, you are the church and you are to hold up the truth. Just as the temple of Artemis stood up as a physical reminder, the church should stand out, defending, proclaiming the truth, being light in the darkness. And so 2,000 years on, you need to ask yourselves, Is this place known as a church that holds the truth? Is this place a light in the darkness where the truth has been eroded so much in this postmodern age where people say, what is the truth? Do people know that the truth is here? Or at least do they know that the people of this church hold on to the truth? John Stott said that the church and the truth need each other. The church depends on the truth for its existence, and the truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. I'm not sure about the defense bit, but certainly the proclamation. The church is there to proclaim it, just like those pillars in Ephesus on the hill that everybody could see the church should be the pillars that are there standing for the truth that's going out and so paul just demonstrates in those few words what the church is it's the household of god it is of the living god and it's the pillar and the buttress of truth now if you've got a mind that works like mine you would be thinking well what is the truth what is this truth? What is this truth that the church should be upholding? And that's exactly where Paul takes his thoughts. He takes his thoughts in verse 14 and he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The truth, in some ways you could say here in this passage, is the mystery of godliness. What's, what's happening here? A mystery is only a mystery to the person who doesn't know the mystery. So, you've got your novel. It's a mystery novel. And when you start on that first page, it's a mystery to you, isn't it? Now, hopefully, by the time you get to the end, it's no longer a mystery. You found out who committed the crime. You found out who did the deed. The mystery has been resolved. And so, although you call it a mystery, it's no longer A mystery because you've read and you've come to know the solution. Has that made sense? I hope it has. And for many, God's word is a mystery. They open it and they don't understand it. But for those of you here this morning whose eyes have been opened, you know the mystery, or you know something of the mystery. You you know what the Bible teaches. You know what God is about. You don't know everything, but you've got an idea of what the mystery is. And and so Paul wants to emphasise and explain and just say to the people, this is what the mystery of godliness is. This is what the truth is. What is the truth? And he comes out and he quotes what some people say is a hymn. And it goes like this. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Uh, The theologian writer Walter Locke tried to put these lines into English verse to give us an idea of what this hymn might have been like. In flesh unveiled to mortal sight, kept righteous by the Spirit's might, while angels watched him from the sky, his herald sped from shore to shore, and men believed the worldwide awe when in glory passed on high. You get a sense of rhythm there. You get a sense of hymn there. Now, now we don't know if this tune was any good. But what we do know is what these six lines contain are absolute, timeless truths. And I think just as a side, and just as a little note for us to have in our minds, this is why our hymns and our songs need to be theologically sound. It's not the music that preserved this hymn. It's not the fact that people enjoyed singing it and it gave them an emotional high because of the sentiment of the music and the words together. The reason this has survived first and foremostly is because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is different from many of our hymns. There's a good reason why we should sing psalms, isn't it? Because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we need to be careful what we sing. And, and, And what we sing and what last should be the absolute truth. And there's, there's an amazing depth of truth in here. And people as they've looked at this, people have they've studied this, people have preached series that have gone on for months over this passage, and we just got this morning to look into it. But people have said, well, there's two three-line verses. And that's effectively how Walter Locke uh, broke it up. And some people say, well, it's actually three two-line verses of contrast. And you possibly could see that there. Or or some people say there's there's two-line couplets of truth. Well, it does work out in the style of the poetry of of, of that day and age. But I just want us to go through it chronologically. I just want us to look at this verse by verse by verse and, and go through it like that. I'm not going to try and do anything clever with linking the verses together. And so what is truth? What is this truth? What is this mystery of godliness? Well, the first thing we see here is Jesus, the man. Jesus, the man. And this truth is so often attacked. You see, God was manifest in the flesh. What does that mean? Jesus came to this world. And as Jesus came into this world, he was the son of God and he was man. Absolutely both at the same time in that miraculous way. It's called the incarnation and the gospel of John in, in chapter 1, and verse 14, put it like this. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God was manifest in the flesh. This is a great mystery of godliness. This is a great truth. Jesus is God. And Jesus is man. And Jesus is the God-man who came into this world and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory and his glory was there and he was full of grace and truth. And Jesus lived a perfect life. There was no sin in Jesus' life. It wasn't because Jesus couldn't sin. Jesus was a man and he had capacity to sin. But he didn't sin. And so you could say he wasn't able to sin. No, he didn't sin. He was tempted. But unlike us, when we are tempted and we can fall, Jesus didn't fall. The Holy Spirit enabled him to overcome this. And there was no sin in Christ Jesus, and yet he was put to death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sins is why we die. And Jesus had never sinned, but Jesus died And Jesus gave up his life for the ransom of many. God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the spirit, or vindicated. See, Jesus is risen. The great truth is Jesus came to this world. God came to this world. And that God, Jesus, God's son, gave up his life and died on the cross, and Jesus was buried in the tomb. But Jesus didn't stay dead. His body was laid in the tomb, and on the third day he rose from the grave. And we could ask ourselves the question, how did he do this? How do you raise yourself from the dead? And I think it's here he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was justified by the Spirit. Romans 1 verse 4 declare Jesus is declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead in Romans 8:11 but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you all he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you the truth that Paul is Hammering out here is the fact that Jesus came to this world. He was the man Christ Jesus. He was the Son of God. He died on the cross and he was risen. And in his rising from the dead, he was vindicated. And how did that happen? It was through the power of God and the outworking of the Holy Spirit. And Christ is vindicated. You think, that's probably a bit far-fetched. How did that happen? And in this little tiny hymn of six lines, we brought some witnesses. The a witness statement. He's seen by the angels. The angels are there at his birth. Jesus has seen. This isn't something that's just been made up by the Apostle Paul. It's been seen. The, the angels have seen this. They saw him at his birth. Hark, the herald angels sing as we sing in the hymn, don't we? Why were they singing? Because Christ has come. It erupted. And then it is temptation. Who is there afterwards? Helping him? The angels are there. And it's transfiguration. Who is there? Angels. And before its crucifixion, angels. And resurrection. Who is standing on the rolled away stone? The angels. The angels are there, and they've seen it. They've seen Christ, God's Son, the Son of God, come to this world. They've seen him laid low, and they've seen him raised. And just in that little line, seen by the angel, we reminded of the wonder and the depth of those first two lines. Matthew 28, talking about the, the scene there afterwards. Christ has been laid in the tomb. And the women are all upset, and, and they come, and the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not there. He has risen as he said, come and see the place where the Lord's lay. And I think what is wonder of wonders here in this little six line verse is the angels had this amazing opportunity, this amazing privilege of seeing Christ come, of seeing him through his life on this world, of seeing him received in glory. But who is given the responsibility of proclaiming Christ? You see, next we see in this hymn that he is preached among the Gentiles. Jesus is proclaimed. And and what's happening here? How is Jesus proclaimed? Did the angels go around Proclaiming? No, no, the angels didn't have that responsibility or that job. The disciples were commissioned to proclaim the gospel. At the end of Matthew, we have that great commission to go out. And then in Acts 1 and verse 8, the disciples were told, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the rest of the earth. And you see, at Pentecost... Jesus was proclaimed to the nations. Jesus was proclaimed to all people. He is proclaimed to the Gentiles. He is proclaimed to all folk. And on that day, thousands of people came to believe. They proclaimed. And, and the church continues to proclaim. I, I, I smile jokingly saying that the church in Cyprus started with the Apostle Paul. He came to proclaim it. But 2,000 years later on, there still are people proclaiming it. And wonder of wonders, and grace upon grace, and mercy upon mercy, they believed on in the world. You see, it's not just the fact that this gospel is being proclaimed, but people are believing on it. Jesus is believed. That's the, the truth that the church grows on, is people believe. You see, when... The Apostle Peter preached that sermon at Pentecost. He couldn't have imagined the result, could he? Peter, who a few weeks earlier had denied Christ, who was that broken man, is there preaching the sermon of his life. And if you're going by results, it was an incredible sermon. On that day, about 3,000 souls were saved, added to the church. 3,000 they believed on in the world. And the book of Acts is recording the gospel going out into all nations, going out to the Gentiles, going out to all the world. And as you flip through the pages of Acts, you see the church growing. And then when you read the letters of Paul and others, you see how this church is growing and, and the gospel is still going out in power. We would love to see 3,000 people saved in Cyprus. I might, on a bad day, settle for 300 or 30. But we wanted to see souls saved, aren't we? And, and God is still working and God is still saving and God is still working this through. People around the world are believing in the gospel that is being proclaimed to the Gentiles. In Cambodia, when I was a boy, and this is dating myself, Pol Pot was running round endeavouring to destroy the church. And and they estimate that the church decreased to 200 people in the 70s in Cambodia. And now it stands at over 300,000. That's the gospel. That's this hymn. They believed on the world. It's going out. In the 1970s, 0.1% of China's population was Christian. And now it stands at just over 10%. That's incredible, isn't it? In the most unlikely of places, Saudi Arabia is one of the places where Christianity and the the evangelical church is growing the fastest. It was around 0.3%. And now it's 4.6%. In a closed Muslim country... God is not confound. This gospel message that was seen by the angels, this truth that Christ was raised from the dead, this truth that the Son of God came to this world to save his people from his sins, is going out, it's being proclaimed, and it's being believed on by the world. And then the last little tiny few words is received up in glory. Jesus is glorified. Jesus is taken up in glory. And some people say, well, the, the chronological order of, of the hymn has been spoilt here because in their minds they would say that Acts 1.10 was when this happened and this is when Jesus went up to heaven and while they looked steadfastly towards heaven he went up and behold, two men stood with him in white apparel and yes, we can say that Christ is sat on the right hand of God and he's interceding for us, but if we read on In Acts 1, into verse 11, he also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, so will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is returning. Jesus is returned, I believe this hymn is reminding us that although Christ in one sense is glorified and sat at the right hand of God, the big event is yet to come. The big event is when the whole redeemed church will be brought together. Christ will return and we will go up in like manner to heaven to be with him. We will be taken up to glory, to his glory, and there will be an eternal glory. And all of sin and all of death and all of the effects of it will be banished forever. And I think that's what this is pointing to. And so we have this amazing truth, don't we, that's given to us, this mystery of godliness, that God came to this world as Jesus the man to save his people from their sins. He gave his life up on the cross. He paid the penalty. The angels saw it, but they weren't the ones chosen to preach it. We are those, the church, who have been chosen to preach it and proclaim it. And people will believe on it. And we've all got this great, glorious day to look forward to. But what I want to do now is just bring this hymn to us and say, okay, what do we do with this truth? What what, what do you do with this truth now, 2,000 years on in Meidenbauer? You are not. Ephesians, you're not in Ephesus. Most of you probably haven't even seen Artemis's temple. But it's for you, and it's for me, and it's for us right now. And, and the first thing that we have to state is the only way to be part of the living God's church is by believing and confessing the truth is by believing that the Lord Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins. It's your sins that separate you from God. And the only way you can be part of his living church, the only way you can be brought into his family, is the way that he gives. You can't tell God how to do it. God has made the way through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can never make yourself right with God, but God has made a way by which you can become right. And that starts by believing. And the question is, do you believe? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins to be forgiven? But it carries on because it's not just about saying, I believe. It's about confessing the truth and living the truth and being the truth. Does your believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour translate to the fact that you are now trying to live like Christ? Confess Christ? Your being like him doesn't save you. He saves you. But if you're saved, you'll be wanting to become more like Him. You'll be wanting to resist sin and temptation. You'll be wanting to walk in His way. You'll be wanting to gather with His people. You'll be wanting to be part of the living church. You see, if we're part of the living God's church, we're in the household of God, we're family. We've been brought together. And this is the amazing nature of the gospel, isn't it? The amazing truth there, that that verse that I quoted, that there's no longer uh, slave or free, there's no longer male or female. We're brought together. And as we're brought together, we're brought into a family. And it's so sad, isn't it, to see church families acting just like the world, dysfunctional, fighting, Him not talking to her and them upset with those and them wanting that and those wanting that and the whole thing being a mess. You see, we're to be known for our love for one another. That's what the world is supposed to see. That's a truth that should be radiating out. We have a truth that sets us free. Are you acting like a family? Do the the people of Maidenbau in this district know you as a family who love each other, who care for each other, who are bothered about what's going on around about them? See, if we are part of the living God's church, we will love the truth. And we'll hold on to the truth no matter the cost. God's word doesn't tell us this explicitly, but tradition does. Ten of the disciples were martyred because they held the truth. Or the truth held them, should I say. And they wouldn't let go. Now, now, it's probably unlikely that your holding the truth will cost you your life. We don't know what the future holds, but it's probably unlikely. But holding the truth nowadays is social suicide, isn't it? For those of you that are younger in the school, in the universities, standing up for what Christ says, walking in his ways, gives you a hard time. Principles that go against the culture of this day are not tolerated. People laugh at you, people tell you that you shouldn't be like that. Standing against the insanity of this woke, postmodern, neoliberal, godless society will come at a cost. It comes at a cost. And if we're part of the living God's church, we will be willing to, through his strength and his enabling, to to stand firm. And and the tragedy is the problem is not just with society. The so-called church is rejecting the truth. And the so-called church is coming against and fighting the true church, as it were. You have churches proclaiming truth and things that are not sin that evidently are sin from God's word as truth. You have people ripping out the first few pages of the Bible because they don't like the idea that God made the world in seven days. And other pages have been ripped out because they don't like the idea of a miracle or a virgin birth or whatever it is. And, And it's not just when we hold the truth that society comes against us tragically. As we hold the truth, others who proclaim they know the truth as Christians don't. And it's hard. And they won't tolerate you for standing up for the truth. And so, friends, do you love the truth? Do you hold the truth? Are you prepared to pay the price? You see, the living God sent his Son so that you can hold the price. There is a way of being able to do it. You see, if we're part of the living church, we will proclaim the truth, not just hold the truth, but we'll proclaim the truth. We want to share the gospel message, and I know that you here as a church proclaim the gospel message. Listen to my language. I say, I know you as a church. Proclaim the truth. I want to ask a question further. Do you personally? It's not good enough to say, oh, my church does outreach. Do you do outreach? Do you speak to your neighbours? Do, you, do you care enough for the people you work with or go to school with that you share the gospel with? You see, we, we, we lament the lack of church growth, don't we? We long for the church in England to grow. We long for the church in Cyprus to grow. But it's not going to come unless we're taking this proclaiming, this preaching, this sharing the gospel seriously. You see, this hymn works because there, in the centre of it, after these truths were seen by angels, they were preached by people. They were proclaimed by people to the Gentiles, to those around about. Emotive language, isn't it? Gentiles, heathen, godless people. The church proclaimed it. And then what happened? People believed. But if it's not been proclaimed... What's happening? They can't hear. How shall they hear if they're not told? And so it's not just the church as a whole, as Maidenbauer. It's you individually have a responsibility to share the gospel, to be that buttress and pillar of the truth shining out. I'm so thankful for what you are doing here in Maidenbauer. I'm so thankful for how you support the Lord's work in Cyprus but as a church again I'm just going to challenge you with a question and I don't know the answers, this is a challenge should you or could you be doing more as a church is there more that you could do to, to shine that truth out to be that pillar and that buttress to be like that temple on the top of the hill which everyone saw is there more light that you can shine out from here into the darkness around us And lastly, if we are part of the living church, we'll be looking forward to the future. We'll be looking forward to glory and not living for the now. This is the travesty of modern day life. Modern day life tells you to invest. In the moment, it's all about the moment. It's all about the experience. But what we are seeing here and what this hymn is pointing us to do is beyond the moment and to the glory. Are you investing for eternity? I think one of the biggest problems of the modern day church and particularly modern day church in the UK is it seems to think it has to solve today's problems. Now, yes, we have a responsibility to the poor. Yes, we have a responsibility to take care of the needy around about us. That is in God's word. But we're not to solve today's problems. That's not where we're about. What the church is about is to point people to glory and say Christ came to save you from your sins, and your biggest problem isn't your bank balance. Your biggest problem isn't whether you've got work or not. The biggest problem you have isn't whether you are marginalised, or whether you're a victim, or whether you're an oppressor. Your biggest problem is you are without Christ. And there's the an eternity. And the eternity is the most important thing. And so as the church is focusing on today's problems, it's missing The fact that it is and should be this pillar and buttress of truth. The truth has been put alongside. And social care and social endeavour has been brought into a bigger aspect than the gospel. And what we see from church history is when the gospel is proclaimed, when God's work, society and the social side of things look after themselves. It happens just because society is made better through Christ. but maybe one of the biggest problems of Christians, not the church, of individual Christians, is that they've forgotten that they're not at home. They've forgotten that they're not at home. You see, the world is not enough. It was... uh, an illustration of Al Martins that I'm stealing, but it makes so much sense to me. Passports are an everyday part of my life, living overseas. Uh, And I have a passport that is probably in many ways envied by the world. It's a British passport. uh, And it allows you to go many, many places. And, And now in Cyprus, it allows me entrance to Cyprus. But then what happens is it's opened up and they give me a visa that allows me to stay in Cyprus. And you prayed for that visa, I'm sure. Every now and again, we've got a renewal of our residency. Let's pray that that will come through and we get a stamp. My passport is a British passport. My visa allows me to stay in North Cyprus. I think we get this wrong, friends. I think we think we've got a passport that says we're a citizen of this world with a visa to go to heaven. And that's wrong. That's not what it is. If you've been redeemed by Christ who came from heaven to pay the price for your sins, your passport, your residency is heaven. And your visa allows you to stay in this messed up world for as long as God wants you here. But the problem is, friends, is we don't live like that. And when we don't live like that, everything goes wrong. And what this hymn brings us to after the majesty of the truth, the immensity of this gospel message, is saying, don't sell yourself out for the moment now. Live for glory. Live for the coming of Christ. Live for that. Where are you investing? You see, if we are part of the living church... Our death takes us to be with the living church for eternity. It's a transition. And rather tragically, the trauma of this world outweighs the glory that comes in our minds. The opportunity of this world outweighs what is really ahead of us. And I think one of the biggest truths we have to grasp as a church living 2,000 years on from this hymn, is this world is not our home. We're going to glory. We're only going to get there through Christ, but we can through him. And so when we have that in our minds, all these other bits fall into place. And the cost of holding the truth is really insignificant, isn't it? Being laughed at, contrasted with an eternity with God. Being tortured. It's not light, it's a heavy thing. But it's momentary in comparison to eternity. But when we're looking at this life, they become huge. And what we need to do is take this hymn on our minds and realise all these first parts have come true. Christ has been here. Christ has been vindicated by the Spirit. The angels have seen him. He's been preached among the Gentiles. He's been believed. And if the first five have come true, the last bit's guaranteed, isn't it? Christ is returning. He's going to be glorified. And so, friend, are you living for eternity? Or are you living for now? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the amazing truth of your word. And, oh Lord God, within it there is mystery that we don't understand, but we thank you that it is the truth nonetheless. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and enable us to really come to know for ourselves in a deeper way that Christ, your Son, God-man, came to this world to die on the cross, to pay the price of the sins of his people, for those of us that have believed and repented and come to you, may we be justified in the Spirit. May we walk by the Spirit. May we realize that what the angels have seen is true. May we proclaim it. May we share it. May we believe it. And, oh Lord God, keep us from living for the moment and today. And may we be those that are looking forward to an eternity with you forevermore because what Christ has done